1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. That's where we're going to pick it up tonight. Um, this next section goes all the way through, at least through verse 21 of, the, of chapter 4. We're not going to make it that far tonight. We're going to break it into two parts in order to make it a little more manageable. So tonight, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And John here uh, really uh, begins a new section where he, he begins to talk about love and talk about God's love. Now, he's already talked about it some, but he's going to focus on, on it in a whole different way. You know, lo love, it has been said, has many faces. People see in it, uh, see it in all sorts of sorts of shapes and sizes. And I think it's interesting. Sometimes we see things more clearly, not through the eyes of adults, but through the eyes of children. And I read about a group of researchers that posed the following question to a group of four to eight year olds. And the question that they asked these these children was, what does love mean? And these researchers, the answers they got, one as one researcher, one researcher said, they were broader and deeper than anyone could imagine. I want to I want to read you some of their answers on to the answer. What does love mean? Chrissy, age six, said, "Love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs." Isn't that sweet? And Terry, age four, this is this is so. There's there's a there's a subtle profoundness within children. Often, she said, "Love is what makes you smile when you're tired." Uh, Danny, age seven said, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it, the taste is okay. Bobby, age five, listen to this, listen to this. This is so, so, you, you'll have to chew on this one for a while. This is what he said, love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. That's deep, that's deep. And then there's Noel, age seven, who said, when you, love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt, then he wears it every day. <laughs> Marianne, age four, said, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. Karen, age seven, said, when you love someone, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. I think Karen's watched too many cartoons. <laughs> Jessica, age seven, said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. That's so, so powerful. And then let's see, uh, it was Rebecca, age eight, the last one, she said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Well, you know, it's one thing to get a child's perspective on love. And some of those are deeper than probably any adult could, could give you. But it's even better to get God's perspective. And several times in the Bible, God gives us his thoughts on love. And we find it in Song of Songs, uh, chapter 8, verses 5 through 14. We have 1 Corinthians 13, which we know as the love chapter. And then, and then here in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. Now, now John, as I said, has already addressed the subject of love in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And he, but he talked about love as an indication that one is walking in the light. And then he talked about love in, in chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. And there he says love is the evidence that one is a child of God. 
And yet, uh, it is here in this passage in First John, in chapter four, seven through twenty-one, that he provides his fullest treatment, where he talks the most in depth about love. And John takes us to the very origin and the very source of love, and that is God Himself. And in fact, love is His very nature, and acting in love is His essential character. And the Greek word that John uses, it's the word we all we all know it. It's agape. It dominates 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 uh, through chapter 5, verse 3. It appears over 30 times in that, those few verses. And some have even said that John is the expert on love. You know, they'd say Paul is the expert on faith, and James is the expert on, you know, good works that show your faith, and John is the expert on love. And you know what? In today's world, if there's ever been a time when we need an expert on love, I think it's probably now because in our culture, love is too often understood in selfish and in sexual terms. But the Word of God paints a completely different picture because here the, the words sacrificial and supernatural just jump out at us. But ultimately, love comes from God and is seen most clearly in the death of Jesus on the cross as He takes him on Himself the sins of the world. So let's begin reading in verse 7. I'm just going to read verse 7 and 8. We'll read verses 9 through 12 in a few minutes, and we're just going to uh, walk through these. But 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. So with tender affection, as he does again, over and over again, he often says, dear children or dear friends, he he once again just says, dear, dear friends, love one another. And that's a statement that he's going to repeat twice more in this passage, in verse 11 and verse 12. And, and the, the question is, why are we to love one another? And the first reason John gives us that for why we're to love one another is because love is from God. Now, while John has already instructed his readers to love one another several times in this, in this letter... This is the first time that he indicates the source of his love, a for, source of love, because he's, he says, for love comes from God. So real love, true love, always has its source in God. Whoever loves with a God kind of love gives evidence that they have been born of God. So I want you to think about this, and we're going to put these, these pieces together. But regeneration, the new birth, being born again, unites spiritually dead, selfish hearts, with God's living, loving heart, so that His life becomes our life and His love becomes our love. This is what happens. John Piper puts it well. He said, love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love, begot, excuse me, love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what He is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light. And fire gives heat because it is heat. So John's point is that in the new birth, this aspect of the divine nature becomes part of who you are. The new birth is the imparting to you of divine life. And an indispensable part of that life is love. God's nature is love. And in the new birth, that nature becomes part of who you are. Very powerful statement. I want to, I want to help you understand. I think there's... Word pictures that will help us get this idea of what he's really talking about. That if we are in Christ, that we will love. Because, let, think of it this way. If a hose 
is connected to a water supply, water will flow through the hose. If a wire is connected to an electrical source, power will flow through the wire. If a branch of a tree is connected to the root and the trunk system of that tree, then the sap of that tree will flow through the branch. And and if a man or a woman is truly connected to the loving Father through the Son by the indwelling Spirit, then the love of God will flow through his or her life toward others. Because he is in you and he is love, love will flow from you. That's the idea behind this. And, but, and so he tells us that he's the source of love. But John actually even takes it a step further here. And it's almost surprising you know, now it's not surprising to us because we've read this so many times over the over the centuries, but it was would have been a little surprising, maybe somewhat shocking a little bit to uh, some of those that read it, the letter for the first time, because John goes a step further and he says, not only is God the source of love, but he says he is love. He is love. And, and in this way, we can see why God is the source of love. Because love flows out of his essential being. To say God is love is to make a, a profound statement about the very nature of God. This is, we, we take this uh, probably because we've heard it so much, we take it a little more lightly, I think, and we don't understand the weight behind that statement when he says God is love. It is an absolute claim that goes well, be, well, well beyond treating love simply as one of God's attributes like, say, mercy or grace. God is merciful, yes, and He is gracious to be sure. But you know what? The Bible never says God is mercy. The Bible never says God is grace. But it does say God is love. So and what is the difference between saying God is love and saying that God loves? Well, C.H. Dodd wrote this about this, this that, that statement, but he says, the latter statement might stand along other statements, such as God creates, God rules, God judges. That is to say, it means that love is one of his activities. But to say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. All that he does is the expression of his nature, which is to love. This, there, there are very few th places or very few concepts where this, this takes hold. Uh, it's very similar to the Bible says God is holy, which means that his holiness permeates through everything that he does. And holiness, you can, I'm not going to be talking about holiness tonight, but holiness is, is the perfection of all of God's attributes. So, so when God creates, His holiness causes Him to create perfectly. Uh, you can go through down the line of those things. But with love, we have another, uh, uh, not just, an, not just an, something that He does, but it's, a, it's an attribute, is who He is. And it tells us that, that if He is love, then all that He does is the expression of that nature, that everything that He does is an expression of love in one way or another. The, the statement, God is love, puts love on a whole different level respect to, to, with respect to understanding who God is. Love is so central to God's character that it is predicated of Him. He is love. 
And love, therefore, characterizes all of his activities. God's creating, his ruling, his judging, his revealing, his instructing, his blessing, his disciplining, his giving, his rebuking, his sustaining, and then recreating. They're all done in love. There is nothing God does that does not emanate from his loving nature in the same way that there's nothing that God does that does not emanate from his holy nature. It's a perfect union of his love and his holiness in his character. Any, any view of God that does not appreciate the centrality of his love must therefore be considered deficient. So how many of you know, you know there are people, maybe you know somebody, but, uh, but they, they tend to think of God as this angry old man, this judgmental uh, being that's up in heaven just waiting for somebody to mess up so he can strike him dead. Well, to understand him primarily as angry or, or judgmental is to distort the reality. Yes, God does dispense wrath in judgment. That's because that comes as a result of the fact that he is also holy. That's part of his nature. And so, so holiness doesn't just wink at sin. Uh, so yes, God does dispense wrath in judgment, but it's important to acknowledge that that judgment does not define him at the core uh, it, it, it does not reveal his central idea, identity. It, it, his central identity is love. And only by knowing his love can God be understood and known. You cannot know God without knowing love. You can't. If, if he is not known as love, then he is not known at all. Furthermore, the person who does not love cannot know God. For to know him is to know love. Do you see the connection here? Why it's absolutely impossible to be a follower of Christ and not have love, not walk in love. Now, I'm not saying that everything you ever, ever do is going to be perfect and, and, and going to be loving and kind and all that sort of thing. But I am saying that this is who he is shaping us to be because this is who he is. Uh, the, the, the absence of love in a person's life actually reveals, according to what John is saying, it reveals a lack of knowledge of God. It reveals that, they, that a person doesn't really know God because if God is love and I know God, I'm going to know love. Do you see how it all connects? If God is love and if, and if that love is known, then his love will flow through the life of the, of the believer. To know God is to know love and to know love is to show love. I didn't even, I, I could be a poet. W without showing love, there is no knowing love and there is no knowing God. To claim to know God while failing to love others is an absolutely false claim. That's what John tells us right here. You cannot say, I know God and then not have love. That's what John says. It's just as false as claiming to know God who is light, which he already dealt with, and yet continue to live in darkness. It's the same thing. We, we get the whole thing about light and darkness because we think of light as good and darkness as evil. And so we say, oh, well, God is light. He's holy. You can't, you can't uh, say that, that I know God who is light and then just keep walking in darkness. And it's exactly the same thing. I can't say that I know God who is love and continue to walk without love. It's, it's impossible. That's a false claim. It's the very character, essence, and nature of God to love. That's, that's so important for us to get. See, and, and some of us, we need to understand this because there's so many people 
um, especially, I don't know, maybe I don't know if I should say especially, but there are many people uh, like, like, okay, I grew up in old time Pentecostal church. Anybody remember back when, you know, everything was a sin? You know what I'm talking about? And, and so it's easy to get caught up in this judgmentalism and this, this idea of this false guilt and these sort of things. But what happens is even when you get past that, there's this thing that happens internally that sometimes we begin to, uh, to beat ourselves over the head. And, and, we've, and, we, and, and because we've had this, this emphasis on God's holiness, which is not bad, that's a good thing. But it, in the middle of that holiness, that reveals our need for God, but we also have to remember His love. That in the midst of all of that and all the things that I deal with and all the, the, the times I miss the mark, all the times I sin, it would be really important for us to get a hold of this and realize God is love. And what that means is he wants the best for me. Now, that does not mean he wants me to have what I want. Right? Anybody here ever want something that was not good for you? Like all the time? <laughs> like every time dessert rolls around, <laughs> right? And, and so he's not going to give you everything you want. But I have to know that he loves me to the point that he's not looking at me and trying to figure out a way to, to, you know, to strike me because I've failed. But he's looking at a way to try to get me past that because he wants the best for me, which is to become like Christ. And so, as we see in verses 9 and 10, when we talk about God's love, this means that, as I said, He seeks the best for others, even at great cost and expense to Himself. So let's read verses 9 through 12. This is how God showed His love among us. So I already said, God is love. We've talked about that. He said, okay, how do we see His love? This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. So, so God showed His love. He said He showed His love among us. Uh, God's love was put on public display through the person of Jesus Christ. We didn't John says, we didn't just hear about it, but we saw it. John, John said he was an eyewitness. He saw this love. And so here is what we know. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, when he says, it's translated there in the NIV, it says God's one and only son. You might have another translation that, that just says, simply says God's only son. That's not a bad translation, but the reason they add the one and only to that is because the word that's translated only, it's a Greek word that's used five times in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. It's in John chapter, actually, by the way, every time it's used, John uses it. But it's used in John chapter 1, verses 14 and 18. Then John chapter 3, guess what verse in John chapter 3? John, yeah, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his what? only begotten, or as some translations now say, one and only. And again in verse 18 of chapter 3, and then here in 1 John 4, 9. Now the reason they've added that one and to the only, or this, the reason that like in the King James it says only begotten, 
is because that word, the Greek word, means unique or one of a kind. I remember one time I was, I was preaching and I, I read John 3.16. I read it from the NIV and we were talking about that. And after service, I had a guy come up to me and he was very upset because he, he said, he said, he just wanted to take me to task. And he just said, he said, you read that it is not God's one and only son. God has many sons. I'm a son of God. I said, you, you don't understand. The whole idea behind that is that Jesus is God's son in a unique way. I'm not God's son the same way that Jesus is the son. Everybody, we're on the same page there, you know, and that, that there, there was and is no one else like Jesus Christ. He, he was the only one who could come. He was God, the son before he ever came to this earth. And so that's what the idea that is trying to, to, to communicate here is that he was unique. There was nobody like him, that he's the one and only son of God. And, 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 you know, when you hear this, you should be hearing the words of John 3, 16, ringing years. But God sent his son from heaven into enemy territory, into a world of sinners on a search and rescue mission. He came looking for us even when we were not looking for him. And Jesus Christ, sent from God the Father, embodied his love, and he demonstrated that love in his life on earth and through his death for us on the cross. Now, the thing is, the world, when you talk about love, the world thinks that love is something that just makes a person feel good. They think it's the butterflies in the stomach and the, the infatuation, you know, or, or they think that it's okay to sacrifice moral principles or, or to sacrifice what's good for other people in order to obtain that love. That I don't, it doesn't matter what happens to you, I just have to do what I have to do to get my love, right? And, 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 but, but that's really the opposite of real love because that's selfishness. And, and real love is not selfish. Real love is selfless. In, in fact, uh, you know, we talk all the time about becoming more and more Christ-like. You know, I, I believe that you, you, can, you can make application in a lot of different areas, but I really believe that that really boils down to, the, to one single idea. You can simplify it to this, that the more selfless I become, the more Christ-like I become. And, and so that's, that's the, the idea behind love. Real love is sacrificial. It gives. And that kind of love does not come naturally to human beings. And, and real love is sacrifices. Real love takes, takes action. And, and believers must not only say that they love, but love must be shown by the way we live, by the actions, how we treat the people around us. It doesn't matter if you say you love someone if you treat them like dirt because your actions proving you don't love. You know, that's, it's, like, it's like a husband that comes home and beats his wife and then he says, oh, I'm so sorry, I really do love you. No, you don't. No, you don't. If that's how you treat that person, you do not love them. Uh, and, and this follows God's example for he showed us his love by very clear and definite action by sending his son. This world of humanity was dead with no life, with no hope. God sent his son. This world of humanity was in rebellion against a rebellion against its loving creator. And still God sent his son. This world of humanity was not looking for God and even hated him. We were enemies of God. God sent his son. He took action. That's what love does. And why did he come? It says he came 
that we might live through Him. Now that leads to a question. What does it mean to live through Him? Well, it means to be born of God and to know God. It means to experience His love and to share that love with others. It means to enjoy fellowship with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit. It means to walk in the light, to, to enjoy fellowship with one another, to confess and receive forgiveness of sins. It, it means to walk as He walked. It means to abide in the Word and in His will. It means to know the truth. It means to be confident at His second coming. It means to have victory over sin and so much more. What a life the Son provides for us. Verse 9 encapsulates, that what we just read in verse 9, it really encapsulates the basic message of the gospel. It is, you could say it's the gospel in a nutshell. God showed how much He loved us by sending His only Son into the world so that we might have eternal life through Him. That's the gospel in a nutshell. The, the, the great proof of God's love is not that He said He loves us. It's not even His everyday blessings. The great proof of God's love, as well as our motive for love, is that He sent His one and only Son so that we could live through Him. Verse 10, He said, This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, when we talk about love, we already mentioned one word, but the Greek language has four words to depict four different kinds of loves. There's there's eros, and we all know that, that's sexual passion. Uh, then there's storge. Anybody know what storge is? That, that's like family love, brother, sister. Uh, it's love within a family, mother toward children, children toward parents, that sort of thing. Then, there, then there's philos. Anybody know what that one is? Yeah, that, that's friendship. You know, or, or some people you'd say brotherly love, but it it's really boils down to friendship. And then there's, of course, agape which the literal translation is loving kindness. But, but agape was, uh, you, you need to know, agape was not a word that was commonly used in the everyday Greek. It really became uh, much more commonly used in the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament adopted that word to describe God's love. Um, and it goes beyond just loving kindness. It is a self-giving, self self-sacrificial love. It's a perfect love. And, and so that fourth word is, was used exclusively by John to characterize God's love. And it speaks, as I said, of compassion and kindness, but also unselfishness, a very uh, uh, giving love. And it's this kind of love that, that motivated God to send His Son to the world to die for undeserving sinners. Not, not the, uh, this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Now that tells us, reminds us, we already know this, God loved us before we loved Him. In fact, truth is, He loved us, when, loved us when we still spurned Him, when, when we still hated Him, when we were still enemies of God. He loved us. And God initiated the love relationship and humanity. We as people, you, me, had nothing to do with it. How, how could we? All people are totally dead to God. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. I don't know about anybody else here, but I have found dead people to be generally unresponsive. Right? They, they don't ask anything. They're, they're not, you know, they're not coming to you and asking you to do something for them. 
Uh, and they, you know, if you have a conversation with them, if they talk back, you need to get some help, you know, right away. But, uh, but uh, that tells me that it, it, when you know when humanity was dead uh, and dead to God and dead spiritually, we didn't have it within us to even go to Him and say, "Hey, we need a Savior. Would you do something for this for us? Will you help us?" God knew that, and He took action even while we were still dead, while we were still in, uh, had hatred toward God. He, he proved his, his love for us by sending His Son, as the NIV says here, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now that atoning sacrifice, you may remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that, that concept of atoning sacrifice and the, the big $10 word for that is propitiation. Remember when we talked about propitiation? Now, the, the supreme manifestation of God's love was demonstrated in sending His Son to die in order to take away the sins of all who believe. Now, when, when the Greek word that's translated atoning sacrifice, it means to appease. Uh, it, was, it was used in, when, when you describe pagan worship, it was used to, to describe where uh, humanity would offer some sort of sacrifice to an angry God to appease them. To get them to, you know, not kill them. So, or to give them a good crop, you know, whatever you had to appease them. And, and that is very foreign to the way that the New Testament uses it. The New Testament uses it, it means to atone or to expiate. And, and it's very different in that in the, in the pagan worship, that propitiation, that offering to appease the anger of God, it would be man bringing something to a God to appease them. But in this case, what happened was God says, Okay, these people don't even know they need this. They don't even know they need an atonement. They don't even know they need this sacrifice. So his love is so great that what he said is, I will become that sacrifice to pay the penalty for the sin that they have incurred. See, that's a whole different kind of love. Because it's not just a love that says, okay, well, you've asked, so I'll make a way. This is a love that while we were dead and couldn't even, didn't even know we needed a, prop a propitiation, didn't know we needed an atoning sacrifice, he said, I'm going to provide it anyway. In spite of our ignorance, in spite of our evil. And, and why did this have to happen? Well, we know nothing sinful or evil can exist in God's presence. He is absolute goodness. He is absolute perfection. He is absolute holiness. Remember, we talked about He is love, but He is also holiness. That's part of His character, part of His nature. And that means that He cannot overlook, condone, or excuse sin. He cannot pretend that it never happened. See, we, we think of forgiveness sometimes. We think, um, we don't understand forgiveness a lot of times. Somebody will say, man, I'm so sorry. Uh, and then what we do, we often will say, oh, it's all right, forget it. Well, that's not forgiveness. I mean, kind of is in the way we approach it, but, but that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't say, oh, we'll just forget the sin. Forgiveness looks at the sin and says that was wrong. It was hurtful. It was wrong. And yet I choose to wipe out the debt that you owe to me. You don't owe me anything anymore. And so... Uh, our sins demanded this payment. And, and, you know, 
people that say, well, you know, one day everybody will be saved, but they, they don't understand that, yes, God loves people desperately with a love that we can't even begin to understand. But that love does not make him morally lax. That love does not cancel out his holiness. And if he, if he were to just simply excuse sin, he would be denying who he actually is. And that would make him inconsistent, which would make him imperfect, which means that we're in trouble if we're serving an imperfect, imperfect all-powerful being. Right? Because if he's all-powerful and yet he's imperfect, then he could use that power in a way that's going to hurt me instead of help me. So, so he, he can't just let it go and pretend that it didn't happen. Our sins demanded a payment. And so Jesus said, he, he came, he paid the penalty for our sins that our sins demanded. He removed the obstacle that prevented us from having a relationship with the Father. I love what John Stott wrote, wrote about this. Listen to this. This is, uh, this is so, I love the way that this is worded. He said, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's, that's the first part. In other words, man trying to take the place of God. I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be in control. I'm going to be the Lord of my life. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Isn't that powerful? Those who trust in Christ will not have to bear the penalty for their own sins they will be acquitted because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So this is the measure of his love for us. And the fact that he is love. All of this flows from the fact that God is love. But then John turns to the practical application of what it means for us as believers. What it means for us that God is love and that he has demonstrated this love through his son Jesus Christ. So let's look again at verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, since... God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, the phrase that he starts off with says, since God so loved us, that literally means since God thus loved us or since God loved us in this manner. This manner. So that's what it means when it says God so loved us. It's not talking about how much. It's talking about the way he loves us. How did he love us? It, it, he, his love is expressed in a deeply sacrificial way that puts the needs of others first. Jesus died for us. And, in, and, and he's saying in this manner it, that God's love is revealed to us. And so therefore, we should walk in the same kind of love that is sacrificial and puts other people first. This is the whole idea behind this. Since God so loved us, since God loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. You could add in the same way. Uh, as, as seen in, in chapter 3, verse 18, our love is also to be expressed in sac sacrificial action rather than only with words and speech. Robert Yarbrough, a commentator, he said this, Christ's costly propitiatory atonement. And this is a lot of big words, but listen carefully uncaps an artesian well of selflessness 
in which believers find resources for sacrificial care for each other. How many of you know what an artesian well is? It's a deep well that is just gushing forth. And what he's saying is Christ's atoning sacrifice, his selfless sacrifice of himself, takes the lid off of an artesian well of selflessness. And in that well of selflessness that is Jesus, we find what we need to sacrifice for each other. The, the great and challenging application to these commands is, is this. We must go to those who don't want us there. Isn't that what Jesus did? He came to us when we were still enemies of the cross. We must go to those who don't want us there. We have, we have missionaries, people serving in Muslim nations, and there are many people that don't want them there. doesn't change the fact that as a follower of Christ, we're still called to go. We must share a gospel that, that they don't want to hear. We must love those who may hate and even kill us in return. This is the application for us when we look at what Jesus did and the way he loved us. Because we are connected to Jesus through this new birth, we must go and live like Jesus among our friends as well as among our enemies. And then verse 12 makes a somewhat curious statement. Because in the middle of all this talk about love, he says, no one has ever seen God. I don't know about you, but I read that. I'm like, what? where did that come from? No one has ever seen God. Well, this is likely an allusion to Exodus 33, 20, where, where God speaking to Moses says, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. And, and, uh, and he did see a remnant of him. It really, the, the word that's used in the Old Testament says it's like, it was more like he saw his shadow uh, where he was, right? But, but, uh, but the, the truth is, you can't see God, right? The, the, but here's the problem. The invisibility of God raises the question of whether God may, can truly be known. So John is saying, nobody can see God. And in his gospel, John had made the point that, that had Jesus not manifested God to humanity then God the Father's character uh, would have remained hidden in abstraction. We would not have seen. What did Jesus say? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to reveal to us the character and nature of the Father. That's how we know what God is, the Father is like, because we look at the life of Jesus. And if Jesus had not come, that would still be a mystery to us. We'd all, all we'd have is ideas and words written on a page. So the coming of Christ as we're told in another place in the New Testament, revealed the invisible things of God. E even though the divine nature itself cannot be observed by physical eyes. Nobody can see God, but Jesus came to show us what he looks like. And in 1 John 4, 12, what John does is he adds another way, besides the coming of Christ into this world, another way that God reveals his character to the world. He said, if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. The, the, the Apostle John was one of those few people that, who actually got to see, hear, and even touch the in our incarnate God-man Jesus. From, and from the second century onward, though, nobody alive 
has directly encountered Jesus like that. We read the accounts of those who, who had those types of encounters. We believe in Jesus, but we can't experience him physically in the same way that John did in that first century. And, and, and this fact, the reality of that, makes this second means of really revealing God's character so important for us today in today's world. Because we can't see, hear, and handle the incarnate Son of God, listen to this, the only evidence of God's character as love on earth is the Christ-like love of believers. God's love flowing through us. That's the only evidence on this earth that the people, people of the world can see. And, and, and in other words, he's saying God can be known. Even though nobody can see God, he can be known. Though, though he cannot be seen, he can be known by love. Furthermore, he says, God's love is made complete in us when we love one another. Now, that does not mean that somehow God's love is incomplete or it's lacking anything, you know, unless believers love each other. That's not what it means. It means rather, first of all, the idea of complete really carries with it more the idea of maturity. But it means that God's love comes to its full fruition, its full maturity in our lives when we love each other, when we love other peoples. It's, it's the in us that's the emphasis here. It's, he's not saying, he doesn't say that, that uh, his love is made complete. It says his love is complete, made complete in us. But that's how the, his love develops and grows in us, how we mature in his love. Uh, no one has ever seen God, but we can make him visible to our world. Jesus came to reveal to the world what God is like. And in the same way now, Christians are supposed to be the visible manifestation of God on earth. We are to show the world what Christ is like. And the most important part of that is that God is love. We are the body of Christ. We are his hands. We are his feet. We are his primary means for working in the world today. People talk about the church all the time. Oh, I don't like the church. You know, the church is this, the church is that. Well, listen, the church, first of all, is the bride of Christ. <laughs> and so you better be careful what you say about the church because, you know, I don't like it. You can say what you want about me, but I really get upset when people start talking about my bride. You know, as people say, oh, I can't stand the church. Well, that'd be like coming to me and say, Pastor Dave, I really love you, but I just can't stand Julie. That's, that's not going to fly at all, period. And, 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 and so we under, need to understand that, first of all. Second, second thing is, is, is that we need to understand that God in his sovereignty and in his wisdom has chosen to bring us into partnership with him we're, we're therefore partners with Christ in his work. We're co-workers with him, as, a, as one translation says. And, and so if we understand that, then we understand that the primary means, now it doesn't mean it's the only way God is going is to move or that he can move, but the primary means that he uses to preach the gospel and to reveal Christ to this world is through his church. And, and that's why the church is so important. 
Um, it's through the church that we make God visible to this community by loving them and by loving each other and, 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 and letting people see the love of God. Now, remember, doesn't mean that we ignore the holiness part. Because a lot of people say, oh, we got to love people, so you should, just, you should just love them right where they are. Well, yeah, it's true, you love them where they are, but you don't pretend that, they're, that, they're, that there's no sin if they're living in sin. You have to speak truth. You have to speak truth, but you have to speak it in love. It's the, it's the two of them together. So we make God visible that way. You know, Christians today, we, we make so many excuses when it comes to evangelism. You know, we do. We, it, it's t- I tell you, if there's anything that Christians and non-Christians have in common, it's that evangelism makes them both nervous. I think that's it. If there's anything we have in common, that's it. But, but you know, Christians, you know, we, we, we get overwhelmed because we've heard all these things about how you're supposed to say it. Got to memorize this, got to memorize that. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with all those things. Those things are good because that's about preparation and knowing uh, uh, how to how to speak the truth and how to defend the, the gospel and that sort of thing, but but when you really boil it down to to it, you know we, we say things like, well, you know, I'm just so shy, just so I'm just quiet, it's so shy, you know. And there are some people that enjoy being around others, and some people that make friends with strangers easily, and they're always surrounded by many friends. And there's somebody people like Sam that's always always talking, you know, unless he's sleeping or eating, you know, whatever. Uh, but you know what? Not everybody's like that, are they? Some people are shy. Some people are reserved. Some people, you know, would rather just kind of sit back in the corner and, and just not have a lot of, they don't want any attention. And they, they may just have a few friends and they're uncomfortable talking with people and they, uh, that they don't know and they don't like mingling in crowds. But that's okay because God can use either one. See, shy people don't need to become extroverts in order to make a difference because you don't have to become an extrovert to love someone. See, the the passage isn't saying how many people to love, but it's saying how much to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. To love them sacrificially, to put them first, to look out for what's best for them to love them in that way. See, our job, we, we, we tend to think that evangelism is that we're supposed to you know, present the gospel. Think of it like this. We, the Bible talks about planting seeds. We think we're supposed to plant the seed, water it, and, and, and get a harvest in 15 minutes. You know, it's just, it just doesn't usually happen that way. In fact, if you start witnessing to somebody and they're ready and they surrender their life to Christ in that moment, that's, that's very likely an indi- indicator that somebody planted a seed sometime in the past and the Holy Spirit's been watering it and you got to be there at the harvest moment. Um, but we, we make this thing, you know, into all this to do and, well, we got to do this, this, and this. And like I said, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong about those things. But we, we need to remember our job is not to save anybody. You can't. You don't have the power. Our job is to faithfully love the people God has given us to love. Whether there are two of them or 2,000 of them. And if God sees that we're ready to love others, 
then he'll bring them to us. And I think that's true not only individually. I think that's true for us as a church. When we learn and get ourselves to a place where we're ready to love deeply, sacrificially. And I think many people in our church are. But I think we, we still got a lot of growing to do. When we get to that place, God will bring them to us. Because we'll be ready to love. What we, weren't, we won't compromise the truth. But we'll love them. And He'll send them to us because He knows His love flowing through us can transform a life. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father, we want that kind of love. We don't want the kind of love the world talks about or even the worldly church talks about. We don't want the kind of love that compromises in order to keep the peace. But God, we want the kind of love that gives sacrificially, that loves those even when they hate us, that, that serves people, that despise us, and, and that God, in doing that, that does not come naturally to us, but in doing that, God, it reveals you to people. And Lord, that's the kind of love we want. And Lord, we know that does not come with, from within ourselves. We can't work ourselves up to that. This is a work of the Holy Spirit within us, that as we come to know you, your love is, you shed, you, your word says you shed your love abroad in our hearts. God, we want you to plant that love and to grow that love and to make us people of, of agape love, people of compassion and sacrificial love and giving. And Lord, and in so doing, that you would use our lives to love people to Jesus and that they'll see Christ in us. And, and even though they, they may think it's us in the beginning, that they'll say, what is it about? Why do you care so much that we'll be able to point it all of the attention and all the glory to you? And we'll be able to say, the only love that you see, the only good thing in me is because of Christ. The love you feel is the love he's put in my heart. And I pray, God, that you would make us people who love like that. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.